0: Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon. We are continuing our sermon series titled Deliverer, which is taking us through the book of Judges. Today, we will be wrapping up the series by summarizing the major themes we have seen, including human frailty, how we are lost without God, how life will disintegrate without a king, who is ultimately God, and how we need a deliverer, who is ultimately Jesus. Caleb will look at these themes with a specific emphasis on God's justice and mercy in this book's context and also in the context of the New Covenant. Finally, we will look at how the cross is the ultimate display of justice and mercy.
1: Welcome, if you're visiting with us, we are wrapping up our series that we've called Deliverer, and it's been a study through the book of Judges, Um, and this is essentially our final sermon in Judges. Next week we will touch on a couple of ideas from the book, but it's been quite a time, hasn't it? Exploring the downward trajectory of a whole society, a whole nation, as they're going through this process of forming their own identity. And now remember, Israel means to wrestle with God. And I think Judges has been quite the wrestling match. It's ugly, but it's real. The Bible is very honest about human nature. And there's some deep pain and tragedy in this story, but there is also hope. And as usual, hope can be easily missed. Judges is a human story. It's a human book filled with the complexities and absurdities that life on this earth still brings with it today. This is a quote from Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. And somebody please tell Renus that I'm quoting Lord of the Rings. I'm hoping I can get a Christmas bonus or something for that. (laughs) Tolkien says this, The world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places, but still there is much that is fair, and though in all lands love is now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. I think it's good to remember that Tolkien lived through and experienced firsthand some of the worst atrocities of the 20th century, truly things that we might struggle to imagine. Tolkien fought in World War I, and he lived through World War II, and that was much of his inspiration for the Lord of the Rings. And I think if he can find hope and say that he sees love growing greater in the midst of such darkness, I have to believe that we can do that as well. And so to practice this, we can start by looking once more for hope in the book of Judges. So that's our purpose this morning. We're going to go back and trace the goodness of God through the book of Judges. We're going to do this primarily by considering the themes justice and mercy. Now, justice and mercy are huge biblical themes. So let me give you a little road map for where we're taking things this morning. So we want to try to define justice and mercy And first, we're going to consider what do these words mean to us personally as individuals. Secondly, we're going to think about what do they mean in the book of Judges. And then finally, we'll consider what they mean in the context of the new covenant because Jesus actually reveals to us the true meaning of these words. So the first thing to note is that these two words, justice and mercy, are in tension with each other, they're actually almost contradictory. Because justice is about fairness, it's about getting what you deserve, and mercy is about compassion. It's about the removal of a consequence that is actually fully deserved. And yet we believe that God is both just and merciful. How is that possible? Stay tuned, I think we will get to the answer by the end of today. So, I think we all have different experiences with the words justice and mercy. And our experiences are important because they shape how we see and how we hear these two words. So think about what comes to mind for you when you think about justice. Is it social justice? Is it fairness and equality? Is it the criminal justice system? Is it punishing and vindictive? What about mercy? Does it seem unfair or difficult to understand? Or maybe is it expected and taken for granted? All of these feelings that we have towards these themes are really important. And I think some of us are more inclined toward justice and we struggle with the idea of mercy. And I think others of us are more inclined towards mercy, and we struggle with the concept of justice. So which kind of person are you? What concept has been more difficult for you to grab a hold of in your life? So here's a picture of me, and I'm thinking I'm around two or three in this picture, probably around May's age. Um, And I was the youngest in my family, and the only boy. So I have three older sisters, and the closest to me in age is actually seven years older than me. Um, So I was shown a lot of mercy over my life. I mean, look at that face. (laughs) Um, These early experiences of mine, of being forgiven quickly, being shown mercy, and often getting out of facing the true consequences of what I had done, profoundly shaped who I am. And as I grew up, I had a lot to learn about justice. And I struggled with the concept as a whole. And I can still struggle with that concept. Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive us? What is the big deal? These were the questions that perplexed me in my younger years. Because I took mercy for granted. Of course, people will just forgive me, they're going to move on, all will be well. And it was only as I did things that caused damage that wasn't easily fixed that I started to realize my deep need for justice and mercy. And I had some friends who wouldn't forgive me and move on quickly. Actually, they they weren't willing to forgive, and that really shook me up. But through this experience, I also began to realize that if I was just forgiven without consequence, that would actually be unjust. Forgiveness and mercy aren't cheap. They come with a great price. So maybe you can relate to some of my struggles. Maybe you're more of a mercy person, like me. Now, in contrast, here's a picture of my wife, Nalanda, from when she was little. She's holding her baby sister in that picture. I think she looks a lot like May in that picture there. But Nalanda is the oldest in her family. She has a younger sister and brother close behind her in age. And so she grew up with the weight of responsibility as the oldest child and with a strong, strong sense of right and wrong. I mean a really strong sense. (laughs) So she tells a story about a time when the school bus driver, she was quite young at this time, elementary school years, uh, and the school bus driver was giving all the kids on the bus an ice cream treat. And she wanted an ice cream treat so badly. But she'd been told, you can't accept food from strangers. And the bus driver was, of course, a stranger. So she was the only kid on the school bus that day who didn't have an ice cream treat. It's actually really sad. She got home and she burst into tears and told her mom all about it. But you begin to see that Nalanda, has a very different story than me. She has always been more oriented toward justice and has struggled with the idea of God's mercy. Now the theological struggle for Nolanda hasn't been around why would Jesus have to die, but how can Jesus dying actually be enough to cover all of my failures and shortcomings? Do you see where I'm coming from this morning? Are you with me? I'm not saying that these are fixed positions in our lives and they never change, but I just want us to notice and be aware of how our life experience shapes how we see these themes today. And these things impact how we understand God's justice and His mercy, and ultimately how we understand Jesus as well. So we've done some personal exploration So the next question is, how do these themes show up in the book of Judges, and what do they mean? So in the context of Judges, justice, God's justice, is his handing over of the people to what they are pursuing apart from him, or we could say, to what they think they want. And mercy is when God responds to the cries of the people, Now, the word for mercy in Hebrew is actually chesed, with a K, a silent K. (laughs) And uh, this this term is in Psalm 23. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And it's difficult to translate to English, but it means something like God's loyalty to his covenant. It means that God is determined to show up because he said he would show up, and he's always going to be there. So, God's justice in this context is also often referred to as his wrath. But it's this idea of handing, handing the people over to what they're already pursuing. So God is in, in essence saying, okay, you want that? You're going after that? Okay, I'm going to let you go after that. Now, he's doing this in hopes that the people will realize something and turn back to him. And God, in the book of Judges, God doesn't really seem to delight in doling out justice. Sometimes we think God is like that. But when you read the story, it doesn't seem to be true. It seems his deep desire is actually to be merciful, in hopes that we will see that we don't actually want what we think we do. We actually want and need him. Sometimes this seems to work. The people really get it. Sometimes they repent and they turn back to God and away from what they've been doing in a response to his mercy, his chesed. But other times they don't at all. And the astounding thing is, God keeps showing mercy anyways. And I just want to show you a bit of how this looks through the book of Judges as a whole. So I'm going to teach off this slide for a little bit. But you remember our cycle? There is doing evil, then there's punishment, there's a groaning or crying out, then there's deliverance, and then there's peace. So in this image that Renus put together, the blue puzzle piece there is actually God's justice, and the green puzzle piece is His mercy. So these events, though, these cycles, actually get longer and longer and more drawn out as the book goes along. So in Judges chapter 2, verse 3, you can look at this if you want, uh, the angel of the Lord shows up, and he pronounces God's judgment or God's justice, and he says, because of what you've been doing, I'm handing you over. And this is really amazing. The next verse, verse 4, the people are in sackcloth and ash, and they're repenting for what they've done. It's like immediate. Judgment is pronounced or justice is pronounced and the people turn and repent and run back to God. And this is significant because this is a loyalty that God longs to see. And it also demonstrates that these people really knew God and they really knew what they were missing out on without him. And this is what gets lost as the book goes along. So next, Judges 3, verse 8 God's justice is pronounced. And it's not until verse 11 that, there's, that the people respond to his mercy and the land sees rest. Then Judges 3, verse 12, and it's a little bit longer this time. It's not until verse 30 when the land sees rest. Judges 4, verse 2. We're moving quickly here. <laughs> um, and then after Judges 4, verse 2, there's no mercy until the next chapter, verse 31, is when the land sees rest. Judges six verse two, justice is pronounced, and it's not until chapter eight this time, in verse 28, and this is actually the last time that the land has rest in the book of Judges. Judges 8:33, God's justice is pronounced, but God is actually kind of absent from how it's told. Um, And then we're left with a question mark. We're left with a question mark. And this is how the book is structured, and it's very intentional. Yahweh is disappearing from how the very story is being told. Before, God was orchestrating events. He was administering justice and mercy. But now, for the most part, people get the credit for the good, and God gets blamed for the bad. I'm talking about Israel, but this is our story too. And the story is disintegrating. Everything is collapsing and falling apart. The land doesn't get any more rest. The people don't respond to God's mercy the way that they did at first. God slowly disappears from center stage. He becomes a background character at best, a genie in a bottle, And mostly he's mentioned when the people are mad at him for the problems which have primarily come from valuing and cherishing the wrong things. Yet God keeps showing up. It's absolutely absurd. He's relentless in his pursuit of his people because of his chesed, his mercy. He keeps showing mercy even when the people don't acknowledge him in any meaningful way. He disappears from their telling of the story, but he isn't absent. He is so very present, even in the darkest situations that come about. And the lingering question that Judges leaves us with is how much, how much justice is going to be required of God? How much is going to be enough for people to reject living their own way and actually start to live His way, the way that we're made to live? And how much mercy is going to be required of God? How bad are things going to have to get before things actually change and people actually change? And it's important to notice the literary device that's being used here. The book is structured in this way because it wants to impress these very questions on our hearts. It's intentional, and it's put together with great purpose in mind. Now, I think the final line of the book of Judges is also a type of literary device that we need to pay attention to. So, if you'll turn with me to Judges chapter 21, Verse 25, this is the last line of the book. It says this In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I'm going to take us back to English class for just a moment. So we know what foreshadowing is it's the indication of a future event. So here's an example of direct foreshadowing. There's a big cloud, and then, oh, I should have seen that coming, now it's raining. So this is a very obvious type of foreshadowing. We read there's a big cloud, and we think, oh, rain is coming, right? It just kind of clues us in. There's another type of foreshadowing, and it's indirect. It's called indirect foreshadowing. And it can be extremely subtle, and it can be really easy to miss. And I think the statement at the end of Judges here is indirect foreshadowing. It's prophetic, and it's also messianic. It's pointing us towards the Messiah, towards Jesus. So it's saying, in those days, but in the days to come, there will be a true king. And he will rule the people with justice and mercy. Now, if you know the history of Israel, you know that we get the time of the kings after the time of the judges. And we get King David. And David's kingdom is actually pretty good. It's a bit of a better situation. Remember, David is after God's heart. And David's passion and desire for God actually mimic God's passion and desire to be close with the people. But even David fails us he still does what looks right in his own eyes. Man, if David can't even get this right, what hope do we have? I want to link this to the prophet Jeremiah right now because Jeremiah picks up this idea. And I want you to notice the similarities between the line at the end of Judges and this verse from Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 23, verse 5, says this. The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. A true king is coming, and he will rule and reign in people's hearts, and by his spirit we will finally learn to do what is right in God's eyes and not what's right in our own In Proverbs, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. This is our predicament. We've been deceived. We've been deceived by the evil one to do what's right in our own eyes. And in doing that, we've separated ourselves from God. And he can't stand beside us in the things we're pursuing. And the question is, how do we get off this path? Judges shows us that as humans, we're incapable of doing this on our own. That's the whole point. And I want to show you a little video clip from the testimony of Reynard Duggard. So if you have time, I would recommend watching his whole testimony. It's really good. But I'm going to show, I'm going to kind of summarize it and then show a little clip. Um, an important clip from something that he shares. Um, so Reynard is a gentleman from, from the States, uh, Washington, D.C. area, and he got involved in gang activity at a very young age, and, uh, because this is what he saw in his community. This is what people were doing, and, and he believed the lie that this was the right path. This is the path to walk down, to have a good life, to be respected, to have money, to have power. So eventually, he's involved in incidents of violence, right? And ultimately, he ends up shooting someone and committing murder. He's sentenced, and he goes to jail. But in jail, in his lowest moment, God comes to him. And he's sitting on his bunk, and he starts thinking about... Um, oh, sorry. He's, 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 he talks about this story about how he's planned out his own suicide and he wants to end his life because the shame is just so heavy on him and so he has this all planned out and he's sitting on his bunk thinking about how he's going to do it and as he's sitting there he starts thinking about life he starts thinking about family friends reasons to live and he says in his heart there has to be another way there has to be another way than this and he hears a whisper of God and God says very simply, try me. And in this moment, he's overcome by God's willingness to even speak to him, but also to say, I welcome you. And he's radically changed in this moment of his life by the love of God. And he goes on to lead groups in jail and he becomes a a powerful witness for Jesus. But eventually he begins to wrestle with profound shame over what he's done because the accuser comes to him, right? The evil one, and says, how could God accept you? You're a killer, you're a murderer. And he wrestles with that, he's really honest about it. But ultimately, God brings him back around to a place where he can accept that what Jesus did is enough to even cover his sin. So in this part of the video, the person behind the camera has just asked If there's anything he would say to the family of the person that he killed so let's just listen in this is just a short clip
2: my apologies is not enough i do regret that decision i had no hate in my heart towards him no animosity there was nothing in me that wanted him to die In particular, it was a moment that happened. And if it brings any type of comfort, any ounce of comfort, I would say that I have the deepest regret and wish that it never had happened. But I do also believe that God had a plan, even in that situation. And if you can just not turn and hear it for another second, because when I said that it, it's hard for me to understand how I got saved, that someone lost their life. As I said it, I was immediately reminded that that is the story of salvation, that Christ died for us to be saved. And I know it may be difficult to hear from me, but truth, no matter who it comes from, is still true. His passing can be salvation for many. God has worked and is still willing to work through his life, through his life with minds connected to it. Yes, there was trauma at the source of it, but God has changed the trauma into testimony.
1: His testimony really, really brings up the themes of justice and mercy. What do those words actually mean? And in this video, he's wrestling with the question, why did someone have to die for me to be saved? But then he connects that with the rest of the story, right? To what Jesus did for all of us on the cross. None of us has been saved without someone having to lose their life. And this is the answer to the question that's left lingering for us at the end of Judges. How much justice is it going to take? How merciful can God possibly be the cross is the final answer. How much justice? It cost the Son of God his life for us to truly be saved. He had to be handed over and forsaken in our stead to get us off the path that was leading us to death. Remember that we, doing whatever seems right to us, following the deceiver, is what ultimately leads to violence War, oppression, tyranny, and genocide. All of these things start with the same seed, rejecting God and his way. Can God leave these things unpunished? No, and he doesn't. Jesus is forsaken on the cross as if he were the one who had done all of these evil things. This is why he's sweating blood in Gethsemane (laughs) And this ultimate injustice, the innocent Jesus dying, is what finally meets God's demand for justice. John Stott, in his essential book, The Cross of Christ, says this, The Father did not lay on the Son an ordeal he was reluctant to bear, nor did the Son extract from the Father a salvation which he was reluctant to bestow the cross is God meeting his own demands the substitute wasn't Christ alone or God alone it was God in Christ God made man this we have been bought and paid for by God in Christ and what about mercy how much mercy how merciful can God actually be every good thing is now available to us in Jesus. Because the outlandish truth is that we don't just get our sin removed. We get credited with the righteousness of Christ. God looks at every one of you now as if you had lived the life that Jesus lived. He holds absolutely nothing against you. He welcomes you fully as his sons and daughters. It's sealed, it's untouchable, and it's absurd. It's madness, and it's all because of Jesus, God with us, our only hope. God's great justice and God's great mercy flowing out from the cross And this leads us very naturally to a time of communion this morning. And I want to bring us full circle. We talked about the ways that we might struggle with justice or with mercy. And I want to allow this meal to speak to both of those deep places in us. The first thing to realize is that this is what it costs. This is what it costs. This is the price that was paid for you and I to find full forgiveness for the wrongs that we have done. We have all done things that can't be fixed or erased easily without someone taking the blame for them on our behalf. This mercy is not cheap and it's not to be taken for granted. At the same time, we have to realize that Christ was willing to pay this price for us because he sees what we can be when we are set free in him. The price has been completely paid. The justice of God is fully satisfied. There's nothing we can do with good or bad behavior to add to this or remove from it. It's done, it's finished. We are welcomed and adopted fully as sons and daughters.
0: Thank you for joining us today. For more resources to help further your study throughout the week, you can go to vbchurch.ca forward slash sermons.